up, everybody? How's it going? How are you? Welcome back. Here we are another week. Happy Monday. Are you feeling stressed out? How, how are things going? You doing okay? I hope you're doing okay. I know things can be a little bit confusing out in the world and finding your place can be kind of confusing, but maybe you're coming here to, to forget about all that for a little while. So today, very special episode. We got Gordon uh, Raphael. He, uh, of course, produced the first two Strokes albums. He produced Regina Spector. He's worked with all sorts of great musical artists over the years, kind of a long, successful career. And it was really cool to chat with him. I'm, I'm really grateful to kind of hear firsthand knowledge of uh, kind of his experiences as being a musician and then becoming a producer and kind of what, what that was like. He just released a new album that we talked about right at the top. Uh, it's in German. I, I couldn't pronounce it, so so he says what it is, but go look it up. It's on Spotify and streaming everywhere. And there's a song that I really like on it called Dusty Boots that's going to be played at the end of the interview. So uh, if you stay tuned for that, you'll be able to check that out. Before uh, the episode gets started, though, I wanted to tell you that the Weird Sisters are coming on the show next week. Um, of course, the Weird Sisters have been on the show multiple times over the years. Super excited to have them back on. They just released their new album, Who Are the Weird Sisters? Saw them a few weeks ago play at the uh, Vinyl Lounge, I think it was. Sold out show. There was a lot of people there. It was really cool to kind of see them have that big of an audience. Um, I mean, they, they've always been good. and um, It's just really rewarding to see them start to succeed. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure they told me they weren't going to play Texas Toast, but they played Texas Toast anyways. Those who know, know. Uh, so, yeah. Um, but their new record is fucking fantastic if you haven't checked it out yet. Going to play Ultraviolet here by the Weird Sisters, the new intergalactic super hit by them. And then after that is the episode with Gordon. So here it is. Reflect! 
Okay, recording in progress. Gordon, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Of course. So talk to me about your new album. What is it called? Where can people find okay. it? All that good stuff. My new album is called Im Sinn des Erfinders, which is a German expression that means in the spirit of the inventor. Okay. And why did you go with that title? Because when I was compiling that album, I was living in Berlin, and I thought it was a very cool uh, expression because they're kind of like these original versions of songs that I later developed, but they were the first incarnations of these songs. So it's kind of like little inventions, um, mostly recorded in New York City in my first studio there. Okay. And so what was the, you were going back to this much, much later then, or was, what was the yeah. creative process like? The, well, the big picture of the creative process is that basically I started recording my own music uh, in the seventies and I have 18 solo albums. And in those days you had to have a record label put you out. Now you have the streaming services. So you know, I'm able to release my entire life of work, of which I'm about halfway through. And so this album is chronologically the next one in the series of things I've already put up. So you kind of have this this long and story career. You've gone through every change that there is in the music business. Is there anything that you found particularly challenging or interesting? Um, I think the um, most challenging thing was figuring out how to live as a creative person in uh, the Western world or in the world, um, you know, in the society I grew up. I grew up in Seattle and, um, you know, people were going to be engineers and teach at university and work at Boeing and, oh, no, I'm going to play rock and roll. You know, I'm going to join a band and like travel the U.S., you know, and have fun, like what, what kind of lifestyle is that? So it was, it was hard to kind of keep an entire life going based around music. And the most interesting thing was that once I was a teenager and I studied classical piano and played in enough rock bands, I realized that just writing music and coming up with poetry and performing was just so interesting. It's like fascinating to see what the new sound would be that would come out of my synthesizers or what new chord changes I would come up with. So the music itself was always the most interesting thing ever. What was Seattle like when you were growing up? Because this is pre-grunge, correct? Right, right. It was like, um, well, I think it was a really cool place. Um, especially there's a lot of young kids into, into, into music. I, I hung out with a lot of young musicians, like, you know, in my early teens that were already really developed on their instrument and everybody wanted to rock. Um, on the other hand, you know, the, as I said before, the basis of the society was more, you know, kind of straightforward and more corporate and, you know, the Get neighbors would look at you like, yeah. You know, why, why are you wearing a silver suit and carrying a mannequin? You know, why are you wearing a top hat? Whatever. Like, they, you know, people were questioning me and my friends a lot for our choices of lifestyle. So did you have a bunch of uh, weirdo friends that you grew up with that you kind of fed off of each other and daydreamed with? Absolutely. Just from the time I was like 10 years old. My other friends in elementary school we were already studying like John Lennon's writing and talking about the meaning of his lyrics. And soon we were playing in bands together and challenging each other to see who could play the most difficult classical piano pieces. And so, yeah, there was a I had a good group of people that had bright minds and really pursued their talent at a very early age. Did you have any kind of mentors that were a few years older than you like maybe a teacher or a sibling's friend or anything like that or was it just your buddies um in school we had a particularly great creative writing teacher who uh showed us the writings of kurt vonnegut and uh herman hess 
and uh, it was really supportive of us being creative and going out there with our writing. And then I had two particularly amazing piano teachers. One of them, the, I'm glad I had it in this order. When I was 10 years old, I worked with this guy who taught me how to improvise. He said, this is the most important part. Just make stuff up. And here's how you make stuff up. Now make something up for next week. And so I kind of learned how to be liberated with music before I learned how to be structured. And then in high school, I had a very incredibly strict but gifted classical piano teacher. And he just wanted me to work hard and he didn't want me to make any mistakes. And he knew what he considered the best pieces of music. He was the complete authoritarian figure, but he was also kind of cool because he was so nerdy about music. So I got my kind of structured formal training later. Interesting. Yeah, I, it was uh, similar for me in a, a way. I, I grew up in Maine. And my first job was at a recording studio. It was this place called the Maple Room in Lewiston, Maine. Wow. Which lucky yeah, you. I was very lucky. Um, so I, I had this this mentor. His name was oddly enough, his name was also Taylor, Taylor Mesplay. And he was my next door neighbor in this town called Durham, Maine, which is Stephen King's childhood, like where he spent his childhood at. Um, so I right. kind of had that, and there was this uh this improv jazz night that would happen every Monday night and there was this band called snow monks and it was led by this beatnik poet. His name was Gil and he would read poems called Nixon's youth and things to, to the, that effect. So it had such a big impact on, on me. And then later in high school, I had a teacher named Matt Fogg who just busted my chops over everything. So I'm a, I'm a bass player. So there, there's like right. no room for error and he's a keyboard player. So he would just ride, ride, ride me. And it really pushed me to become a good player. So in Maine, right. it's kind of odd because there, there's not much of anything going on there. Really. It's a pretty uh -huh. quiet, sleepy place, but I had two great mu uh, musical experiences at a young age um, and kind cool. of saw the, the difference um, of what it meant to be a professional musician on both the recording and engineering side and then on the playing side, being a working musician. Right on. When did uh, Sky's Cry Mary come into the picture? Our Sky Cries Mary. Uh, um, let's see. Well, by the time the big Seattle grunge revolution hit with like Mud Honey and Tad, I had already ventured to New York and failed there. And then I was living in Los Angeles and things were going so good in my old hometown of Seattle that I said, I'd be, I'd be a fool not to go back there and be part of it. So I went back to Seattle about 1991 and I was lucky enough to join this group called Sky Cries Mary, who were looking for somebody that would have, I just had like walls of synthesizers and samplers and I could make as crazy a sound as I wanted as many sound like improvise even on a, like a soundscape level and they had dancers and light show and a dj and two singers guitar bass and drums and so basically i got this electronic soundtrack job with them and it was very successful and very fun what was that experience like of finally playing in all these bands then you get into a band where it starts working out yeah, like let's say it was my 30th band I was in and all of a sudden now I have my first record deal, my first publishing, going on my first tour. We even rehearsed at Prince's uh, studio in, um, you know, in in uh, Minnesota for the tour. And it was really just everything worked out at that moment. And it was like a huge, aha, I knew I could do it. Told you I wasn't going to fail, this kind of thing really vindicating yeah really vindicated just like you know we'd walk into a restaurant in seattle and they'd put on our music or you know they'd act extra friendly to us oh come here have a table it was like being recognized in your hometown uh for your music stuff it couldn't have been better that's great yeah it's uh I, the thing about doing music and just hunkering down and deciding that you're gonna do it you just never know what's going to work and what's going to fit you're you're holding on to a life raft hoping something eventually catches 
Absolutely. Well, well put. So talk to me a little bit about your book that you had released a couple of years ago and the creative mm -hmm. process that went into kind of documenting your life. Right. Well, that is simple because all of a sudden, you know, March 2020, they told us we couldn't leave our house, you know, and I'm a guy that spent my whole life in studios, gigs, coffee shops, touring around cities, walking around the street, and suddenly I have to sit down in my house? What the hell? And just before I was about to go insane from thinking about what I couldn't do, this little voice said, what about that book that you always wanted to write? You said you'd write it and you knew you'd never do it because you don't like to sit down. So I said, okay, that's what I'll do. And basically everywhere I go in the world, I'm recording bands. They all ask the same questions. You know, if I'm in Brazil, if I'm in Arizona, it doesn't matter where I'm recording. The musicians eventually pull me aside during a lunch and say like, hey, what was it like working with those guys? the strokes yeah. or how did you get that drum sound on hard to explain so i just had this litany of stories that i've said so many times that i thought if i put it in the book then everybody can know it and you know it's kind of crystallizing these stories in it for once and for all so how did you first meet the strokes um I was living in New York City at the turn of the century, you know, 1998, 2000. And I had suddenly mysteriously transitioned from being a musician in bands to a guy with a recording studio who recorded bands. Like this job just happened out of nowhere. I've always recorded, but always recorded my own stuff. But suddenly bands in New York were coming to me and I was now a professional producer. And... I needed to keep my kind of livelihood going to pay my studio rent, my apartment rent, live in New York City, which was 10 times as expensive as my Seattle lifestyle. And so I would just go to clubs and see bands. And then if they were cool, I'd hand them a business card and try to get them to come to my studio to make a demo. And so the night I met the Strokes, I was going to this club Luna Lounge on Ludlow Street. Um, checking out a promoter that I want to see how her parties went and they were playing and I thought they were pretty cool. So I gave them my business card and uh, Albert came a couple days later to my studio to see what it was like. And he liked what he saw and he went running home to Julian and said, we got to record there. And that's how it started. And that original recording session, that was the modern AGP, right? Right. It was supposed to be just some demos. For the club scene in New York, in my opinion, you know, they just wanted to make three quick songs in three days. And no one could have been more surprised than me when Rough Trade decided to put it out as a record. Un we didn't re remix it. We didn't do anything. We just they just gave them that demo tape and it went out into the public as a EP. So what was your reaction to that happening? Like, what were your thoughts once that well, it kind of just went out into the ether and it was for everybody else then. Yeah. I mean, as soon as Albert said, there's that rough, the rough trade wants to put it out. Like I already knew I was, I I lived in the eighties. I knew what rough trade did, you know, rough trade was a big deal. And so they were the ones that were going to, it's like already just rough trade is putting out this thing. I recorded none of my other stuff. I recorded, my own stuff or other people's stuff had ever been put out. It just kind of went on the shelf or went in the people's, you know, possession. This would be the first thing that ever went out that I worked on. And so I was pretty giddy and excited about it. And of course I didn't expect that the next step was going to be that people liked it. That was a whole nother level of like wow factor. What was going on in New York at that time, as far as bands go and as far as music goes, what what was the industry like in New York then? It was like in my neighborhood, the East Village, when you went out on a weekend or a weeknight, what you would see was acid jazz, like this really kind of hip hoppy, soft music playing in the lounges and the smaller clubs. 
And then there'd be like drum and bass and jungle music. Those were like taking over New York City. You know, people weren't that into rock and roll anymore because the grunge movement with Nirvana and Soundgarden, it kind of peaked six years before that. You know, it was overseen and now a new musical scene was taking over. So rock and rock and roll wasn't the dominant factor in New York when I lived there in the early, the late 90s and early 2000s. That's for sure. So the EP comes out and kind of the, huh? the whole story is, is fabled. There's a bidding war, all of that. Is it for sure that you're going to be the producer on the album or how does any of that work? Do they come to you and say, hey, now that this is blowing up, we want to recapture that sound or were they going to go with like a, a studied pro for that, so to speak? Well, without giving away one of the best stories in my book, in my mind, of course, they were going to come back to me. I mean, we made this sound. That's what people liked. Yeah, I'm waiting for them to come and tell me the good news. But uh, after a certain event ha happened, basically they started the um, they started the record with a very storied, legendary British producer at the bequest of Rough Trade. And at that moment, I thought, well, I'm just another footnote in history. You know, I'm just like a little byproduct. And that happened to me in the grunge movement, actually. I recorded a band, I did a demo, and they got signed on a major label. And they didn't use me. Like, I just got left behind. And, you know, I got credit on their demo, what no one heard. So this was kind of like history repeating itself. So uh, what was your, your thought on that? Were you just heartbroken or were you like, this is just the way it is? I was heartbroken. I, I, I don't accept things the way it is. I, like, you know, it just felt like a punch in the face, felt like you're kidding me. Oh, fuck. You know, and I just set about to get busy doing other things, recording other bands and just kind of trying not to think about it. And also, so, you know, even though they just had that success with the demo, it wasn't like they were, you know, huge, you know, it wasn't like they were giants yet. It was just kind of, there was a buzz. It was rising up, but already, you know, even that I was trying to just forget about it. When did they come to you to ask you to produce the the record? Pretty quickly after trying it with the legendary producer, you know, I got a surprising phone call from Julian, like asking if I still had my studio. And this was only like three months after we'd recorded the demo. I said, of course I got that studio. And he said, well, we want to record with you. But, and he told me, but we don't even think you can get that sound. We think it was kind of an accident. And we, we just want you to know that we don't know if you can get that sound we liked again. So what was your response to that? I knew damn well that I could get that sound. And I, and my response was like, you're kidding me. You're coming back. You know, I get a shot at this. Oh, my God. You know, I, jumping up and down with excitement. It, it was, the you know, one of the best moments of my life for sure. Well, sonically, you know, is is this it? It sounds so different from everything kind of in that era because you think of the big bands at that time or just all the pop artists at that time, like that was really when Eminem was huge. That was when yeah. Creed was huge. And it is 180, 100% different from that. How deliberate right. was it that you guys were trying to be different from everything else? I, you know, as a producer who comes from being a musician, my first question in the studio to a group that's sitting in front of me is, okay, what would you like to do here? What's your idea? You know, it's not it's not like, okay, you came into my system, you plug it into the Gordon Raphael method and I do my thing. It's like, what do you want to do? You know, I want to find out. And the first thing they said, I think Fab said it, it was like, hey, man, you know what everybody's doing? We want to do whatever they're doing is not what we want to do. We want to do the other thing. And that was a pretty easy one for me because... Pro Tools was rather new and therefore everybody wanted to take advantage of the new thing that you could do 64 tracks of audio on every song. So everybody in 1998 and 2000 were using Bob Clear Mountain sample packs for the kick drum, you know, and they were using 808 samples under that, under the real kick drum 
four different tambourines, walls of backup vocals, you know, big, big, big. So I thought, ha, 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 how funny would it be to just go out and play your songs with eight microphones and then that'll be the sound. So we had like literally eight audio tracks and then we added one for singing. Uh, and that was, you know, compared to 64 tracks of everybody else, it was a revolutionary different thing. <laughs> So was that done on Pro Tools or was it done on tape? It was done with something called eMagic Logic, which was our software. And it was talking to Pro Tools hardware and plugins inside this new computer that had just come out called G4. Okay. So we had this hybrid. And the reason we were using eMagic Logic and not Pro Tools is because as, a, as an electronic musician myself playing synthesizers, eMagic could do MIDI and audio at the same time, like a decade before any of the other softwares were figuring out how to do it. So it was just completely cool that we had this German software that of course they later sold to Apple and um, we had German software we were recording on and then the Pro Tools engine for converting and um, capturing. And were you kind of mixing as you go while you guys were doing the album or how did that work? Well, I always mix as I go so that everybody knows what they're getting, but the strokes were extremely detail oriented. So even though at the end of the day, the song sounded killer cool and pretty damn mixed, they would have three or four days of ideas to try on every song, like raise this up. Now on the G, my bass is slightly quieter than when I play the F sharp, make every G louder so that it matches the F sharp. You know, like there was a lot of mixing done after the recording, even though I had pretty well mixed the recording. Well, it's it's interesting that you bring that up because it's like when you listen to the the album, the way they compose their songs, it's very counterpoint heavy. It's almost like a piece right of on. classical music, you know? Because yes. um, there's Nick's part, and then there is Albert's part, then there's the bass part, then there's the vocal melody, and of course the drums underneath all of that. So everything kind right. of interacts in a really beautiful way on that mm -hmm. record. So like when you're trying to capture something like that, were they were they wanting to do like one take and get raw authenticity or are they like, we have to have it perfect? Cause it sounds they very wanted, precise. They wanted raw authenticity and they were willing to work and sweat and bleed as hard as they needed to, to play the song until it was perfect. It's, it's, there's an, it's not micro edited. It's not like super chopped up. There's a few little movements on some songs that are chops, but most of it is actually played that way and then mixed so that in case one hi-hat was a little quieter than the other, we could make it even, you know, and also so that each part of those counterpoint melodies could be heard clearly without drowning out the other one. Well, it's it's very symphonic. Like that's when I think yeah. of their the first record, that's what I think of. Um, just yeah. like I was mentioning, because of the way, especially the way that the, the guitars are, like the way that yeah. Nick and Albert play together, it's it's a sound. And I feel like even 20, 25 years on, that's still a sound that people go for today when they're like, well, we want to sound like the the strokes. Um, right. Listening to that record, you, you kind of men mentioned it towards the beginning of the conversation, like the drums on hard to explain. Like, how did you get that mechanicalized industrial sound? Well, all through the 90s, when people in my town were listening to uh, our, you know, rock, grunge rock stuff, Mud Honey, Allison in Chains, I liked those bands too. But my heart was with Skinny Puppy in Vancouver, Canada. And they industrial. were an industrial electronic band with synthesizers and drum machines. And so I had so much experience working with 808s, 909, DMX drum machine. I used to, I owned them. I used them on all my songs in the 90s. So that when they told me that they had written a song on a drum machine and they wished that they could use 
Fab playing the drums, but somehow have the sound of the drum machine. It was like no problem for me to, oh, I could, I could do that. I could, I could use EQ and gates and make it sound really mechanical and, and wrong, really artificial, even though it's really drums. I could hype it in such a way that it sounds like a machine is being played. One of the things that I think is uh, that always sticks out to me on that record is the sound of Julian's vocals. How did you get yeah. that sound? Um, Audio Technica 4033A, cheap $400 condenser mic, which was like one of our best mics at the studio. And um, Avalon 737SP tube preamp which has its own built-in EQ and compressor. And that's all you're hearing. There's no plugins, no reverb, no nothing. Just a guy singing into a microphone through a preamp strip, and that's it, done. Interesting, because I feel like a lot when I see people talking about his vocal chain for that album, they bring up like the, the sound of a PV practice amp. Um, right. So that's incorrect uh, then from what, what people are it's saying. It's highly apocryphal because the very first idea I had when they wanted to do it in this new way was I had a PV uh, keyboard amp in my studio and Julian did the very first take of the modern age on the EP version with this live with the band through this PV practice amp. And after one take, he said, nah, I can't hear myself well enough and I, I wanna do it afterwards. Um, and as a matter of fact, I think two notes from that original take wound up mixed into the other ones on the EP version of the modern age. So there is a micro kernel, a corn sized kernel of truth to the PV, but it only lasted one take. And then all the other weeks of recording I did with them, it, it was through this Avalon and condenser mic. Interesting. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. So the record comes out. What happens in your life? Like, how? Did, what changes happen? Well, even as we were making the album, you know, it felt like the temperature was rising because all the labels were... We, we started it before they were signed in America. So all the labels were after their asses. You know, they were really courting the band heavily, which was already feeling like, what are we in Hollywood? Like, what's going on? We're in our little East Village studio and all the labels are trying to get this band. It's so cool. So when the record came out, in my mind, there was no doubt that it was just about to blow up. You know, it was going to blow up. I didn't know how fast it would be, but it felt undeniable that the momentum that was all around it, you know, couldn't, I couldn't see how it would fail. I really could. I felt really confident and super excited. What well, was just so different, you know, I think that the sound was so different and it was a, a th like simultaneously a throwback sound and something that sounded new. Cause it's like, you think of, of course, all the great New York bands, Velvet Underground, the Ramones, you know, whatever it was. Um, and now there are these, these five guys who are in their early twenties. They're good looking. A lot of them, the children of immigrants from successful families, and they just seem to come out of nowhere. You know, that, that right. I feel like that's what's always funny when, when someone blows up. It's the out of nowhere overnight thing, but it's like mm -hmm. everything that you're explaining was very purposeful as far as the way that they were recording. And it just seems like maybe the times were changing and swung in their direction. Yeah, absolutely. It has a lot to do with the times, like, this thing comes out and it's different than everything else. And yet, instead of being rejected because of the difference, like it just melts people's hearts in a new way. And I've always liked music that comes out of left field and takes over. Like, I don't know, even something like Pearl Jam or Alice in Chains, like nobody heard that before. And then it's like, suddenly everybody's just madly in love with it. You know, Jimi Hendrix, you know, yeah, no, for sure. Um, so Is This It comes out. They're the biggest band in the world, basically. They're blowing up. Uh, 
room on fire once were did they have you chosen as a producer for that and said hey we're gonna replicate this um and kind of do similar fashion or or how did that all that work they told me hey we really want to use the Radiohead producer. And so they started it with Radiohead's producer again. <laughs> so, um, yeah. It, Were you heartbroken this, again? Yeah, I was heartbroken. And this time I, I wanted to punch somebody. But, you know, uh, uh, again, I was just getting busy with other stuff. And, um, and I got a call. I was living in London by then. And I got a call at my house in London from the manager of The Stroke saying, hey, How'd you like to come to New York? Like, what for? Oh, to record the Strokes second album. Oh, okay, I'll be there. <laughs> so when you come in to to do the second album, you no longer have your studio because you're not based in New York right. anymore. Um, right. Did they have a studio picked out or how did any of that work? Like, where did you come in I, on the process? Uh, uh, when they when when um, Ryan Gentles, their manager, asked me to come to New York, he said, "Well, you don't have your studio here anymore. Where do you want to record?" And I said, "Go have the guys check out TMF Studio. I had just recorded Regina Spector's album there, and in my so mind, it was a, it was a damn good place to work. It had everything and was really cool and nice people there. And they went to look at it and they said, "Well." we will work there if you decorate it like the old studio. So I, I sat around uh, sending out some people to kind of make it look like my other studio. And we started working at TMF. That's really cool. Interesting. So they, they wanted the same vibe. Yeah, they wanted, they wanted to feel that same way they felt during the first album, but on the new one. Well, what's what's so great about those first two records is sonically, I, I they're similar as far as like the Strokes sound, of course, but Room on Fire is a little bit more hi-fi. Um, even though it's still a lo-fi sound, it sounds like there was I don't I don't know if you were using different microphones on everything or if they were experimenting with sounds. Can you talk a little bit about that and the change in approach for that second album? Well, there's a couple things. They had been touring for two years, so they played hundreds of shows. And play, at that young age, when you play hundreds of shows, one of two things can happen. You disintegrate as a human being, or you get really good on your instrument because you're practicing like hell in front of an audience for two hours a night, or in their case, uh, 42 minutes a night. But yeah, you get the idea. There was some monstrous improvement in the musicianship, even though they were great going into Is This It? This band that showed up in the studio for Room on Fire was another level of powerful and tight. So that's one thing. The next thing was we had seven weeks where we made Is This It? And now we had three months of time to spend on Room on Fire. So all their attention to detail and all their perfectionistic playing, they just had more time to work on getting the vision right. We didn't use any more microphones. You know, we still used 421 Sennheisers on the, um, on the guitar amps, uh, same instruments. There wasn't really that much more uh, equipment used. Similar equipment uh, was used. Um, but they just, you know, had this incredible new ability from practicing new songs and more time to work on their ideas. How did you meet Regina Spector? Um, I had worked in New York with this guy named Alan Bazozzi, and he's a drummer that was signed on a major label band. And then he became like interested in producing and developing bands. So when I first started engineering at my first studio, he was a family friend through Seattle, and he brought bands in. Uh, one of the bands became Longwave, actually, uh, a really great New York band called Longwave. He brought in Steve Schiltz when he was 16 years old, this brilliant guitarist. And so Alan and I became friends, and I worked for him. And when I was in London, he called me up and said, I've met this girl, Regina Spector, and she's a great piano player. And we'd love to have you work on the album. 
So he called me in to go to New York to work with her. Well, the, the album that you worked on with her, it's very, um, very raw. I feel like it has the, these moments of like the band exploding on it, but it's mostly just her and the piano. Was that something that she wanted to really go for? Or was that something that you said, hey, you have this sound, let's follow this and kind of add the band in at moments to really give it the full effect? Like most of the great artists I work with, they have almost 90% of their own idea. They have millions of their own ideas that they want to try. And as a producer, I feel it's my job more to help them hear what they have in their mind and then possibly make some comments or suggestion afterwards. So Regina said two things. I'm going to play the piano and sing together on every song. I'm never going to play the piano first and then sing. That's one thing. Second thing is I'm never going to edit. So I have to get the piano playing and the singing correct from beginning to end on every single song. And then what was the third thing? I want to use tape recorder. I don't want to do it on computer. So that's how we did it. And then on one song, she said, oh, I wish I had a punk rock band to play. I said, a punk rock band? I thought you're just a piano playing person who sings. No, I want a punk rock band. And I said, well, I just recorded a band in London that listened to this music. And she loved this band called Kill Canada. And so I brought her to London and Kill Canada was a British band. They played on her song, Your Honor, and it was amazing. Yeah, uh, it's it's a really fascinating record uh, just because there's, out of nowhere, it feels like that song comes on and it just punches you in the face after yeah. hearing her sing, you know, so beautifully and play these classical-inspired pieces. Right, and then on two songs, she wanted to, I want a string quartet, okay? Let's get her a string quartet. And she's sitting there singing the parts to the musician, just make, okay, you sing, the, you play this. She's just like showing them the parts on the spot from the piano. And somehow it came together and we got two fantastic songs on that album with string quartets. Did you produce Modern Girls and Old Fashioned Men? I did, in fact, yes. Okay, so how did that link-up happen? Was that from you? Did you introduce Regina to the Strokes? Okay, so when I was making Room on Fire, one time at about four in the morning after a long day of work, Julian was kind of passed out on the couch, and I was at the computer, and no one else was there, and I had this idea. I said, hey, Julian, would you like to hear something I recorded here at the same studio about six months ago? And he looked at me like, Gordon, you know, I don't like the music you, you, you know, you like, we have different tastes in music, dude. And I said, no, no, just listen to this. And I played her one, I played him Poor Little Rich Boy by Regina Spector. And instead of telling me to turn it off and giving me a grumble, to my surprise, he said, play another one. And I played another one and he said, burn me a CD of this. I want to take it home. And the result of that was that he wound up taking Regina Spector on tour of the US when Room on Fire was released. The tour was Regina, then the Kings of Leon, and then the Strokes. So suddenly, oh, wow. suddenly, you know, I got Regina touring with the Strokes, and this blew up her career. Every label in the world wanted to know who is this person that Julian Casablancas is taking on tour. And so that's that's how they were on tour together in the US. Now I had this idea of when the Strokes got to Seattle, I was gonna take them to my friend's studio on a farm, a beautiful studio, Bear Creek. And I, was, I, I talked to the owners of the studio. I said, listen, the Strokes have a day off. What if you give me free studio time and I show them your studio and if they like it, maybe the next album will be done there. So the day that, that it all worked out, they come out to the studio, and to my surprise, Julian says, hey, I'm doing a duet with Regina Spector. And I go, what the hell? A Strokes duet with Regina? How could that even work? 
And they showed me, we recorded it in one day, mixed it in another day. Uh, the guy, Ryan Hadlock, great American producer, he was engineering that session at Bear Creek. That's his studio. And I was producing it. And it was a very easy two days with a beautiful result. I love that song. I Speaking of counterpoint, just the, the way that the band is playing and then Julian and Regina's vocals kind of intertwine, uh, they right. complement each other so well, their voices. Absolutely. It kind of, it almost reminds me of like a, a, a Frank and Nancy song from the, from the sixties, their, their vocal takes just right. the way they're interweaving, you know, it's kind of this beautiful classical um, thing. Uh, right. One thing that I'm kind of curious about is you mentioned that you moved over to London after Is mm -hmm. This It. Had you always wanted to live in London and then you had the means to finally do it? I always was inspired primarily by British rock and roll, for sure, from the Beatles on, you know, um, Led Zeppelin. Yes, all these bands really, really hit me. And somewhere in early 2002, um, I had opportunity to work with some bands in London. So I went over there and I wound up staying. And that's, just, you know, and plus the UK was the first adopters of the Strokes. You know, it took a little while. It took a couple of years before Strokes Mania hit in the US because everything goes a little slower. It's sure. bigger. So you have to tour around and around a few more times, whereas in the UK, you can practically play one or two shows and the papers will spread the, the news far and wide. So when I landed in London, everywhere I went, people loved the strokes and wanted wanted me to work. So it was a natural thing for me to stay. Yeah, it was a friendly place to be. Absolutely. Strokes mania. Have you ever gotten to record at Abbey Road? Last, not this Christmas, one before, uh, I recorded for a week at Abbey Road for the first time. And in fact, I never even walked by the place before. I never, like, I never thought about it. I thought I'll never work there. So why should I look at it? And I got invited to record a band from Finland and we worked there for seven days. It was very interesting. What was it like recording at such a legendary place? It felt like you're in uh, the Disneyland of music, you know, the the cafeteria is decorated pretty much the same as it was. And they have pictures of the Beatles eating their food in that cafeteria. So you're there looking at them and you're in their studio, in their control room, playing on their piano, using their microphones. Uh, it was a pretty spectacular uh, feeling. That's really cool. That's really cool. Um, so one thing I'm kind of curious about in talking to you, uh, you know, kind of back to, towards the, the beginning of our conversation, there's all of these changes that have happened in music. One of the, the next, I think, waves that we're kind of facing right now is AI. How do you think AI is going to be involved in music making? Like, what are your thoughts on AI in general? Um. I've seen some interesting AI paintings. Mm -hmm. I haven't, I haven't heard anything from AI. I haven't really explored it very much, but sometimes people say, check this out. It's Elvis singing the Nirvana song. And I'm listening to it going like, no, it's not. And besides who cares? You know, that's not why I listened to music. Sure. I listened to music. I personally listened to music to hear a human being expressing something from their life, from a point of view I never considered, but it also relates to me and takes over my desire. I get really excited when I hear new music that I like. Like it's it's like my best friend. A new song that I like is like meeting a new best friend. And I don't, I mean, AI sounds like a tool that could be used for a number of different things, writing college papers, whatever. But the day, I'll let you know the day I hear an AI generated song that makes me want to hear it again and like becomes one of like impacts my life. It hasn't happened yet. I don't put, I don't, you know, I don't cast doubts in its path, 
but I don't really think that's how music works. Well, I think it's about to radicalize, especially when you think of major labels and what they're trying to do. I mean, they're trying to do it for a profit and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. They're running a business, but like my thought is five, 10 years from now, are we going to get an Elvis like covers album where he's singing Nirvana songs? Are we going to get, cause they're, they're, it, it already exists. The technology right. is not quite there yet to where it's indistinguishable, but I right. think in time it will be. So I'm, I'm interested to see kind of at the consumer level if Frank Sinatra, uh, the, the state of Frank Sinatra will allow for an album of 50 Cent covers to be released. You know, I think we're right. in this weird kind of uncharted territory when it comes to, to music and technology now, and it's going to continue to evolve. Um, so I, like I said, I was just kind of curious to see what your, your thoughts were on that. So, I mean, for me, the art of music and what it's for is a little different than like the normal entertainment value where it's just like one of a million options you could have to spend some time with. Okay. So I understand that they've generated, you know, AI generated pop star where it looks like a woman, you know, and she's talking and she can sing and all this stuff, you know. It's interesting, but uh, is it gonna is it gonna take over my heart? I don't think so. On the other hand, I did try one AI tool, which was I have a stereo mix of a song that I really love, except I mixed the vocals too high, and I don't have the master tape of it. And I was told that there was a AI program that could take the lead vocal and separate it from the instrumental, so that I could then remix it. But the truth of the matter is that to my ears, which are pretty good for as long as I've listened to loud music at death volumes, I can still hear, you know, when the AI separated the vocal, it cut off the end of words and it sounded a bit like, you know, aliased and MP3. It wasn't like a beautiful job. Yeah. Even that, you know, I wanted it to work. I needed to, I want to be able to mix that vocal a little quieter. And I tried an AI tool and it just, it's, you know, it was interesting how close it got, but it wasn't good enough to release. Yeah. Yeah. Well, did you hear the the Beatles song now and then where they used AI for, to, I think it was that same tool to get the John Lennon vocal off that demo. Uh, I have, I, I cannot, I have to admit, I did not check that out. So... For me, when I listen to it, I'm like, okay, this is cool that they were able to release a Beatles song, yeah. but it felt kind of bastardized in a way. It right. didn't feel right. right. There's, there's like, there's something that's kind of lacking as far as the humanity of it goes, where it's so cool. Yes, that you can do this, but it almost gets like, I feel like a lot of conversations with technologies you start to go down this road of well it's cool yes but is it right you know you start to get into this right. black mirror kind of territory yeah it's a lot like imagine you have these gloves made out of this synthetic material you know it looks like real you know but you put your hand in it it's kind of like crunchy or it's like huh it's artificial. It's supposed to be a glove, but it actually feels a little itchy and uh, restricting my hand movement. You know, it's not really human interface. Yeah. 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 I just, I think it's going to continue to, uh, to evolve. There's, yeah, there's a great um, Bowie interview from, I think maybe sometime in the, the mid to late nineties where someone asked him about the internet. Have you ever seen that before? I think so. Yeah, and he basically yeah. just predicts exactly what happens is going to to happen. And it's like right. you you have these these all of these great artists from another era and I I'm not a believer in saying that everything that's good has already been done. You know, I feel yeah. like there's still so much more out there. There's definitely a golden era for sure, um which it's crazy to think about in terms of music because Music, I mean, how long has it actually been recorded for? You know, it wasn't like a job in, in for most of human history. And then right. you kind of get to the the 50s where there's this mainstream 
where you can, you know, of course there was recorded music before that, but with the advent of someone like Elvis, you know, it's like someone can be a superstar musician that's never before. And I am curious to see what is going to happen because really a lot of things now, it's almost like everything starts where you are an influencer first before you're anything. A lot of people coming up today, before you get to be a musician, before you get to be a producer, a podcaster, you have to have some kind of audience. Right. What What is your opinion on balancing social media and that influencer kind of a thing with still being an artist? Yeah, I think it's really hard. I think you know, there's all kinds of opportunities, um, but... Uh, the, I remember the time it took me to learn my instrument and really craft a song. And like, you know, if I would have had to spend part of that day promoting something or thinking about, uh, you know, making a TikTok video, you know, it took me decades of really, really honing in on sounds and putting things together, on, you know, and I'm lucky that I had all that time to really concentrate on it, to like make a body of work. Uh, so I think it's hard to be a masterful musician, really, really dedicating yourself to exploring the limits of your creativity and your artistic ability and still have time for, uh, really working on the internet. Well, it makes me think too, of maybe like a lot of, um, music like instrument player influencers whether it's guitar player or bass whatever it is they're always these shredder crazy players but you have someone right. to take it back to the strokes like Nikolai where he's not a super flashy player at all but that's what makes him good so it's like how do you find space for for someone like that today who, who's coming up so i i appreciate you sharing all that i was just kind of curious what your your thoughts were no um, i think that you hit it right like you know the idea that you could film every you should film everything for con like some of the greatest things i ever did in my life many times were the result of very slow make a mistake make you know soul erase it make an accident get nervous you know it's like took a long time to get a solo right. It's not like you turn on the camera and just flash away. There's a different thing that happens when you go into that dark, quiet place and spend a long time, longer than anybody would want to watch to see how you came up with those vocals and those, you know, those lyrics. Um, I think it's very different than just this surface stuff. Like, look how technically I can play. Look how fast and look how cute I can look while I play. You know, all this stuff is a different set of entertainment standards than digging deeply into your subconscious and into your heart and pulling out some piece of work that, you know, could affect humanity. Well, based on that, what advice would you have for a young musician or a young producer who is trying to make their way in the industry and have a career now? I guess if I look at the nuts and bolts of what I did, just at every moment that I possibly could, I was just going towards what seemed the most interesting and the most fun. And if people said like, hey, that's dangerous, you should really get a job. Or hey, that's silly, you should go to school. I know, I don't want to do that. I want to like hook up a fuzz pedal into an echo machine. And I want to whisper poetry into a microphone with echo and face like you know, I just went for what seemed to be awesome and cool in my own mind. And so I think everybody should do that, whether it's doing somersaults on the internet and filming your friends or dressing up, you know, in model clothing and getting thousands of listeners, whatever it is that is your real passion, just like go for it uh, at all costs. I think that's my best advice. Well, Gordon, I think that is the perfect place to end this at in post i would love to add uh i think the song dusty boots off your new record at the end of this episode would you be cool with me playing that i love that song and uh not no one's hardly ever mentioned it so thank you yeah of course 
Well, hey, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Hey, thanks for having me on again. I made some audio. Maybe it turned out well. I'll send it to you if it didn't distort the whole time because I'm okay. yelling. Perfect. Okay? Sounds good. Awesome. All right. Uh, keep on dreaming. See you next week. dream.